welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Pauline Oliveros. She's one of modern music's most important figures, precisely because her work transcends music itself. She was a founding member of the San Francisco Tape Music Center in the 60s and devised a musical practice called deep listening, which examines the crucial difference between hearing and listening. She's inspired everyone from John Cage to Morphosis to tune into their surroundings. And at this year's CDM festival in Berlin, we got to know a woman who's been steadily innovating for over 50 years. You can hear our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Pauline Oliveros is up next. coming you know it's kind of difficult to introduce Pauline because she means a lot of different things to a, a lot of different people some might come into her work as a musician as an activist or as as an academic a writer and you know we could go through the biographical dot points of her various achievements but um I think one way to sum it up is just to say that cultures still may be catching up to the implications of what her work have opened. This is in fields of music, obviously listening, technology, community building, and even being in itself in some way. But I guess the way I wanted to begin this was that I, I guess a lot of the reason why you're here is that you've recently released a record with Iron on Robbie Biani's label, Morphine. And I was just wondering how that relationship began because from the outside, it was perhaps a little bit surprising. Okay. Well, Ion and I, Ion is here in the audience, um, performed in, um, in a festival in New York called Live, uh, Live Ideas New York. Uh, it was curated by Laurie Anderson. So we did this piece, the piece that, uh, uh, what is it called? I forgot. <laughs> Fire above sky. Fire above, yeah, 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 right. Fire above, sky below, now. Ione and I have been performing together for, for many, many years as a duo all over in different places. We had got a really nice recording uh, of that performance, and I have no idea now how, I, how we got in contact with uh, Ravi. Maybe he wrote to, a, to me, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as it turns out, um, I have uh, other friends uh, from Beirut. Uh, they have a very beautiful festival there uh, every year. And uh, so many of these uh, are friends, and I think they talk to each other. <laughs> 
And as a matter of fact, we're going to, I'm going to play with uh, Mazen Kerbash uh, this evening, who is one of the, uh, one of the friends from uh, Beirut. So he and Robbie know each other and I think they all somehow <laughs> talk to one another and that's how it happened. Uh, in any case, uh, we sent the recording to Rabbi and he liked it and so he decided to, to release it. On, and uh, we, we love having a release on vinyl from Morphine Records. That sounds really good. <laughs> so that's, I guess, how it happened. Yeah, because I guess you've made something of a habit throughout your career of you know being able to cultivate cross-cultural, cross-generational relationships with people from you know disparate parts of the world who all come from different musical backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can speak to what it is about your approach to music that makes you such a malleable uh, substance when you come into contact with all these different types of people. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I suppose long ago, it became very clear to me that uh, we needed to have a, a, a way of in, including people in, in uh, musical activity or sound, um, and that it was possible to work with all kinds of, of people from all kinds of places. But there had to be a way of uh, listening to one another and uh, responding to one another rather than having a closed culture that had, uh, would, not, would not be able to absorb any kind of new, new input. And for, for me, that meant that uh, I, I started to compose some, a, a bunch of work which was called uh, Sonic Meditation. That was in the 70s that I started that work. And uh, it, it was probably prompted by uh, my teaching at the time at the University of California in San Diego. And we had a, a very large course for, for the general student. So there were students who had no musical background necessarily, but we made it possible for them to participate in creating music and um, performing it. And that was the era of tape music. So we would give the students a tape that had a lot of different sounds on it. And uh, then uh, they would learn how to um, cut and splice the tape and put it back together and make a piece out of it. So that was one way. I mean, today you can do that on a computer very, very easily, but then it was a more analog uh, physical activity to do that. Then we, <clears throat> we um, got students to, to uh, improvise with, well, objects and instruments that were easy to activate you know, so that the, there would be a session where they would play together and record and then listen back and discuss so that they got to be uh, able to improvise. What other activities? Oh, we asked them to draw a graphic and then interpret it after they had learned to improvise and and, uh, work with tape and, and so on. So by the end of the semester, the students were all composing and performing and improvising. And so that has carried through uh, my work for a long time. 
But that way, uh, it was an inclusive kind of activity. You didn't have to be a skilled, trained musician uh, to do this. Uh, and so my definition of a virtuoso musician today is someone who can play with anyone, anywhere, anytime. <laughs> this background ties into the deep listening. Mm -hmm. But could you perhaps start with some sort of uh, workable definition of deep listening? And then, but I'm more interested in talking about how it came to be in terms of like a social community um, organization. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. In, let's see, when was it? Uh, 1980, 1988, my friend and colleague, and uh, we performed together for so many years, Stuart Dempster, who plays trombone and didgeridoo. There is a, um, a special place in uh, not too far from Seattle, uh, in a place called Port Townsend, and it's Fort Warden. It was a uh, an army base, and there on the army base is a um, a cistern, which was the, uh, the container for the water supply for the army, about 160 million gallons of uh, capacity, um, about 60 feet in diameter and 14 feet underground. And um, it has a very special uh, sound. The reverberation time in this cistern is 45 seconds. And uh, so Stuart had wanted me to come and hear this. And uh, I happened to be going in that direction and so we went uh, we went to the cistern with uh, Paniotis, the other person who went. There were three of us. And uh, as an afterthought, we took a recording engineer with us. And <clears throat> so we went down into the cistern. This meant climbing down a ladder uh, from a, a manhole size opening. That was the only entrance to the cistern. Uh, had to take our instruments down. And... Uh, uh, so we started to play. We had no dis discussion. Uh, Stuart tuned some of his uh, didgeridoo pipes to my my instrument, and we started playing. And five hours later, we came out of the cistern. We had a lot of tape, <laughs> and we listened to it and um, and decided that oh, I think we have a, a an album here. And so New Albion Records released it in 1989. And of course, we had to have a we had to have a title for the album. And so I thought of deep listening because uh, you know we were 14 feet underground, right? And um, so we called it deep listening, and then we called ourselves the Deep Listening Band. This is because we we're jokers and punsters. And we thought it was really funny to have uh, have it called deep listening since it was coming from underground at 14 feet underground. So that was the beginning of what was what was to develop into uh, a practice, and uh, and now it has climbed. Oh, hello! Uh, it has climbed from uh, 14 feet underground to higher education. Just like that. <laughs> well, it's taken uh, since 1989 
you know, taken uh, from, from then until now. Uh, I teach at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in, in the United States, and we now have a center for deep listening there at Rensselaer. And um, we are creating a new curriculum for a new kind of music program, which includes deep listening. So that, that's why I'm saying it's now higher education. <laughs> um, you, you wanted a definition, huh? <laughs> At your leisure. <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing is, is that um, a 45-second reverberation time is is a long time for some for something to be sounding after you play it, right? So we had to listen in a new way down in that cistern in order to play. And the the the, the album Deep Listening is still is still out still available because it, it really it really sounds different and we were playing I was playing accordion Stuart was pl playing trombone and didgeridoo he could play his trombone put it down pick up his didgeridoo and the trombone would still be sounding so he could play a duet with himself right <laughs> um, and so uh, it was simply voice uh, accordion trombone didgeridoo um, entirely acoustic, entirely acoustic. People still think it's electronic, but it was this this way of listening, and that's what I described in the album notes, uh, and called it deep listening, of course. And so, uh, as as time went on, I um, uh, organized a retreat in 1991 and called it a deep listening retreat. And uh, so 20 people came to the retreat and we spent uh, the week um, uh, engaging in various kinds of, of listening exercises. Um, and so I have con continued uh, and established deep listening retreats that went for 20 years with myself uh, teaching. I own was teaching listening in dreams People don't think about sound and dreams as often as, as they could. Uh, and then we had uh, Eloise Gold, who, who um, was, uh, was listening through the body. Uh, she has a book called Deeply Listening Body. I have uh, Deep Listening, a Composer's Sound Practice a book. Ione has a book called Listening in Dreams. So we've, we have articulated a practice which I call an investigation for the, uh, and I have given a, recently a TED talk called The Difference Between Hearing and Listening. And uh, the thing is we, we confuse those terms, hearing and listening, because the ear hears, but it doesn't, it, uh, it can't interpret. It simply transmits the uh, audio waves to the to the brain, which is where listening takes place. And incidentally, in music programs, there is there are courses which are called ear training. And I'm saying, well, you can't really train the ear; the ear just does its job, right? What you have to train is the mind. And then, if you're training the mind, you're training patterns. So I think there has to be uh, there has to be a new uh, a new way of uh, regarding hearing and listening. And that listening 
is more more mysterious. I mean, hearing you can measure scientifically and uh, and know uh, all the different parts of what's happening in the ear. But listening, no, nobody really knows <laughs> what goes on. Uh, to uh, if you're if you're listening, you may be listening in uh, in all the different ways that people do that, right? It's because of their experience, uh, their understanding, their uh, interpretation, and so on. So, it, to me, deep listening is not something that you can just define. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> so, what are the implications for? musical performance for somebody who is cultivating their uh, listening muscle, for lack of a better term? Okay. Well, um, as I said, the, the deep listening band uh, formed from that experience in the cistern. And then <clears throat> we continued uh, over all these many years to play and to release uh, maybe seven or eight recordings. Um, we always wished for a way to bring the cistern into a venue, to bring the acoustics of the cistern with us. Um, and that, <clears throat> it really wasn't possible. I mean, people think about reverberation, they call it reverb, uh, and you can play with, with a variety of reverb, reverberations, but not uh, the experience of being in that space, uh, surrounded by the sound, uh, and with the sound being sustained and, and traveling around you. I have a colleague at, at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic. Um, he's an acoustician and teaches in a program called Sonic Architecture. And so we took Jonas, uh, Jonas Brash, we took him to the cistern. We took him there and he took an impulse response, uh, which is what acousticians do when they're trying to measure a space. And uh, uh, he brought this material back to, to Rensselaer and with his graduate students, they um, created finally a simulation of the cistern. And so that was for my 80th birthday. <laughs> and on the stage, we, we, in, in this really magnificent uh, experimental media and performing arts center that we have at, at RPI, uh, we've had an audience of 600 people and they were all in the cistern with us. And it was an amazing experience uh, and people were kind of really blown away. It was uh, uh, a really beautiful birthday present mm -hmm. to be able to play <clears throat> in the simulated cistern. And so now we've been able to do that and we also released a recording, uh, the 25th anniversary of the Deep Listening Band in the simulated cistern. But how about for somebody who is, say, en enrolled at the Deep Listening Institute if that's, or is learning deep listening in whether it's in an academic context or at a retreat some of the exercises that you have people do mm -hmm. um, you know for instance having two instrumentalists on a stage and they don't make a sound until uh, it appears to them through the act of listening I'm just wonder, wondering how one gets to the other and how people can apply that into like the, their day to day lives basically 
I like to think of myself as listening to the world as music. So I'm whenever I'm uh, anywhere, I'm I'm always giving attention to what what I call inclusive listening. In other words, I've heard I hear the movement out there. I hear the cough. I hear, hear everything that's going on in the audience, and at the same time, I'm focused on speaking these words that I'm speaking, which are also sounds. And sometimes I listen to speech as sound instead of listening to speech as um, uh, to be interpreted or intelligence. Uh, I mean, the intelligence then turns into sound, uh, and then the sound turns back into another kind of intelligence. But at the same time, I'm aware, I try to have my inclusive awareness of uh, uh, listening uh, as well. So I think there's two, two forms of listening, uh, focus, focus and global. <laughs> there, there's some nice little sounds, you know, out there. So uh, it's a nice kind of accompaniment to, to speaking in this way. So that's uh, part of my day today. Uh, it sounds quite busy, though. <laughs> something, something that you were just saying then is that it seems like there's some sort of connection between the act of listening and, you know, a way of being and a, and a way of relating to people around you. That's right. And I just wonder if you can um, perhaps shine a bit of a light on the connection between one and the other. Have you ever uh, uh, been in the presence of someone who is very focused on a conversation and you would like to be included, perhaps, but that person is so focused on the conversation that nothing else exists? So, all right, so the, the person is completely taken in, taken up with, with that focus, focal uh, attention. So there's no attention to anything outside of that. Have you felt that? Plenty of times. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what I'm proposing is that you can, you can focus on, on what you're doing and what you're saying, but at the same time you can have awareness of others. So that there is a kind of inclusiveness and a feeling that you're, you're present, even though I may not be able to uh, give you the focal attention that you need, I can give you in, the inclusive or global attention uh, so that you don't feel left out. I'm sure everyone feels very included right now. <laughs> How can you cultivate this sort of dual level of awareness? Are there... Um, Techniques or exercises, perhaps. Yeah, I don't. I don't like the word technique. Uh, I think of of it as practice, so that you practice these kinds of things, and you notice. Um, you take notice of how you are and how your what what your attention is is doing, where you're engaged, how you're engaged. Um, are you engaged in your own mental space? Uh, taken up and focused on the thoughts that you're having. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but are you doing that? And if so, is there room for anything else? You know. So it's it's a the first practice is to simply to simply listen and start to 
expand your attention to include everything that you can possibly hear. And um, without uh, judgment of it, Ione has a, a nice uh, thing that she says, lift off judgment. She calls it L-O-J. Lift off judgment. Uh, don't criticize the sound. Don't try to analyze the sound. Simply uh, include it in what's going on. That's what's, what your environment is, is what, what's happening. You know? um, <clears throat> this is, uh, is not meant to, uh, if, it's a, if you're being threatened or it's dangerous, uh, don't be silly. <laughs> but but you, you, you'll become a lot more um, uh, aware of, uh, of what is going on in, in your own daily context. You know. Rather than simply narrowing your attention down to just what it is that you're trying to accomplish and not noticing anything else. That's a practice. And uh, it's where to start. Yeah, obviously um, vocabulary is quite important in talking about these things. And sometimes it seems like we have a, a lot of words for things to do with sight, but not so much to do with sound. Yeah. And that we find ourselves using you know, the same old adjectives to do with hearing, which don't really um, perhaps account for this expanded type of listening that, that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Well, we we talk about uh, imagination, and that means, uh, I mean, imagination is about imaging, and I talk about oralization, so that I'm able to hear, um, to hear sounds, and so I ask uh, questions often of people who are not um, uh, not necessarily musicians, but. Uh, one question would be something like this. Uh, what sound reminds you of home? And can you hear that sound in your own mental space? So uh, different questions that uh, bring up oralization um, is a practice also. Uh, to begin to balance our seeing with our hearing. It wasn't too long ago I was um, talking to Tony Conrad and he was saying that, um, th th this came with many pinches of salt, but he said that, um, that he considered it kind of remarkable that people seem to be more open-minded to listening to sound as sound in more recent times, you know, whether through certain types of electronic music or noise and things like that. Right. And I wonder if you agree with that sort of sentiment or if it's perhaps connected to a change in fashion rather than listening itself. A change in fashion. You mean sound has become fashionable? Can you wear it? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Wearable sounds? Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> well, I found that, uh, uh, to my delight, actually, that wherever I go these days, there are lots of young people at my concerts and uh, they seem to have uh, understood something that was very difficult to come by in, say, 20 years ago, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Uh, it's been a long time coming. And, but it is here now that there's much more openness, I think. And I appreciate it a lot. 
So I agree with Tony. Can we um, switch tack for a second and talk about the expanded instrument system? Oh, sure. Because that's something that has existed for a long time, but it's gone through various different changes as technology has changed. Yeah. I started uh, by being very interested in the... This, was, this has to do with tape machines. Uh, because you have uh, uh, a record head, head and then a playback head, and there is a difference... Uh, in distance between these two heads, so that you and you can monitor both of them. So, if you if you're recording something, you can hear what you're recording, uh, and then it, it passes the playback head, and you can hear what what it sounds like after it was recorded. But you could hear those both at the same time. As a matter of fact, I made um, some pieces, and I made a piece which uh, was used for a dance performance uh, by Anna Halpern, uh, who's a wonderful uh, choreographer. And this was in the 60s. So you could record and then uh, you could play with the volume of, of, inter, uh, of having the playback come in and you would hear these reverberations that changed and it changed the quality of the space. And so I worked with that quite a lot. And uh, that was the, Im the initial impulse towards what is now called the expanded instrument system. I got interested in, then I started stringing tape from one machine um, over to a second machine so that it would pass another playback head. Uh, and then I used a telephone patch bay to send to send the sound from the second machine back to the first machine, either to the first track or to the second track. Uh, and so there were lots of different configurations of delayed sounds. And I continued this, and uh, it, would, it, it was probably about 1991 that it began, we could transfer this analog aspect of tape machines to the computer. It took a long time because the computer couldn't record uh, a very good replica of sound, and <clears throat> after it reached 16 bits, then it was uh, it was pretty good. So then the, the expanded instrument system got to be transferred to computer, and then that opened up many many more possibilities. What I was doing with the delayed sounds was modulating them, or or pushing another wave against them so that you get different kind of qualities of sounds. And so with, with the computer, then it becomes possible to do quite a bit more. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still working on it. <laughs> so essentially it's, it's a series of delays and yes, spatialization uh, I have, tools? Yes, I, uh, you know, I play the accordion, so I have two hands. So uh, uh, I have 20 delays for each hand, up to 20. I don't always use that many, but at times it, it works. So uh, there are different, different delays, and then I have foot pedal control of, over bending the sound. And then I have algorithms that modulate delayed sounds, so they sometimes come back in different form. Is it possible for multiple people to perform on one of these instruments at the same time? Sure. 
yeah. Um, for instance, when, when Iona and I perform together, I might take her, her voice into the system and, and uh, modulate what she's doing. Not, not constantly, but in and out. I could bring several instruments into it if I want. I'm not using that today, tonight. Tomorrow night, we'll, we'll be performing together and I'll be using the um, uh, expanded instrument system, which I call EIS, ICE. <laughs> okay. Has the experiences you had with developing that instrument, has that informed at all your instrument building for people of mixed abilities? Because I know you've, you've been working on yeah. software. The, 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 what we have is, is something called Adaptive Use Musical Instrument. We use the acronym OMI, A-U-M-I. And OMI is a free download on, uh, and, and can be used on desktop and, and laptop. So it's being used uh, uh, around the world these days. Anybody here can go to that, Google OMI, A-U-M-I, and download the application. It's been continually worked on and improved since 2007. And it was uh, a program for the class of, of students from an occupational therapist friend of mine who wanted a technology that would enable uh, the most limited students to play, play in her percussion ensemble circle at the school. And so we went there and, and uh, observed what the students did. They were using uh, mechanical switches to turn something on and off by just hitting the switch with their, because, for example, the students that we worked with, we were, I told her to give us three students who had the least possibility of performing in her, her circle. Uh, and, but they could trip a switch just by a little bit of head movement. That was it. So one of my students uh, programmed in Mac's uh, MSP software, um, the first prototype of the OMI system. Um, so the student would sit in front of the computer uh, and there would be a, there was a vertical line. You could see the image of the student and you could place a marker on the, a virtual marker on the nose of the student, for example. If they move their head this way past the line, they'd get a sound or this way. That was a pretty amazing experience to, to see these students who had never been able to do anything like that um, independently make sound. And it was not very long before they were uh, performing with, with uh, Leif Miller's percussion ensemble. And so that has been developed uh, by a lot of different uh, uh, people in different agencies now. Uh, there's a consortium of six universities of, uh, with a researcher in each one working with this. And we now have an OMI iPad app as well, which is slightly different, but it works on the same kinds of principles. But uh, it enables uh, students of many different, different disabilities and people without <laughs> those kinds of disabilities to engage in improvisation with sounds. What do you think about there being, you know, barriers to access with music in that, you know, a lot of people think they need to be taught a certain sort of way or um, gain a certain sort of expertise with a, whether it's with a program or with a 
technique of their instrument or anything like that. Yeah. But a lot of your work is really tied into showing how um, illusory that those barriers really are. Yeah. Well, there, there, doesn't, there do not have to be barriers for people to engage in improvisation and making sounds. Um, uh, you do not have to be a trained musician to do that. I, I have uh, a great respect for people who have trained long and hard to learn how to play an instrument, who play in uh, various kinds of organizations, whether it's um, a symphony orchestra or a jazz ensemble or rock and roll, whatever it is. This is all really fine, and it's uh, it it's, it uh, brings a lot of joy to a lot of people. But <clears throat> these people that uh, we worked with have uh, actually have performed now in a in a uh, in an international conference uh, and gotten a standing ovation. <laughs> it would never have expected to to do that, right? This is a, a smaller group coming out of Leif uh, Miller's percussion ensemble, came to New York and, and performed an electronic music symposium. Yeah, it was really amazing to see them do that. Your place in history is definitely um, sealed somewhat and it's still expanding. But over the course of your career, did you feel like there was any barriers to the significance of your work being given, given the due respect? Because, I mean, personally... The amount of times that I hear about uh, certain male New York minimalist composers and their supposed, you know, contributions to history versus perhaps what you have cultivated, there's a bit of a disparity there. And I wonder if that's something that do you buy into that perspective, or what was your experience of it? Actually, there was a uh, there was a gathering, I think, of um, composers, and creative musicians in San Francisco in the '60s, and I was a part of that. Uh, also, Steve Reich was there, um, and others. Terry Riley, whom I went to school with, and who was as uh, a lifelong friend. Um, Steve and, and Terry went off and went to New York. Um, Steve was very enterprising, and uh, also Philip Glass, and uh, they built. Um, a career with their ensembles in New York so that they they got that reputation through their own hard work. I, di I didn't go to New York until much later. I was there, I, I got there 1981, but I, I moved up to um, Mount Tremper, which was um, uh, about a couple of hours outside of New York and in the, in the wilderness. <laughs> where you don't get much recognition. <laughs> but I was happy uh, because I was developing uh, many things during that time. Um, I, never, I never went after this kind of recognition. I simply did my work, you know. And finally, you know, I'm old enough, I guess it's all accumulated and there's enough out there that uh, something is beginning to happen, <laughs> right? But uh, there's, a, there's a difference. There's a difference between someone who simply just works and others who work and, and, and uh, uh, ask for recognition. 
And it happens that men are much more inclined to do that. They're programmed in in the breadwinner program. Breadwinner is the one who goes out and earns income to keep the house going, right? I mean, whether you do that or not, that that's a program, that a social program for you for for males. So you've no judgment, of course. Judgment? This obviously is not some concern of yours. Uh, how, which way the the balances of history tip in terms of who gets yes, the most? Yes, I mean, I, I do have some, but but today what I see is is uh, really some very wonderful uh, women who are doing really well, and uh, Laurie Anderson is one of them. I mean, she's been very very uh, recognized and very special. You know, but she was in the New York scene, you know, and I was in the in, in California. Would you have any anything to say to women who are making music these days who perhaps feel that there is a systemic bias against them? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I just say do your work, do your work, and uh, stick with it. No matter what, that's what I did. And um, if you, if you give up, then then it's then it's not going to happen. Um, there's much more openness now uh, for women to do many different things that they were not programmed to do. I mean, the women's program is, is to be the homemaker, right? And uh, like I said, the the man's program is to be the breadwinner. But that's changing. It's changed because everybody is, or is, it's possible for everybody to work and to do things, to earn income. You know, there is a bias. There's no no doubt about that. I mean, look at a symphony orchestra. How many players are women? How many are men? You know, look at the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. They finally admitted women. The only woman they had in the orchestra for for a very you know up until a few years ago was the harp player, <laughs> and they kept her pretty out of the picture for a very long time. And and there was a, there were reasons to um, oppose that. And so now that there has been a change there. So yes, we you know there are women who have uh, gathered together to uh, ask for change and, and ask for recognition, and it's happening. <laughs>